Happy Mother's Day to you. And we've got one more gift for you. Uh, It's a book called Labor with Hope, Gospel Meditations on Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Motherhood. I think we have 10 copies. So if you are currently pregnant, you get first dibs. Have your husband come up and grab these for you. Or if you're just practicing, then you're welcome to have one as well. So stand up and come get one of these books. And can you bring one back to Kanara, please? And give one to Tyler. Give one to Tyler. Uh, I'm not, this is almost about to be a, 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 a papal edict. You shall receive a book, therefore. No one else wants one of these. Oh, Josh. <laughs> you drop one off at the Seymour's and Mrs. Edmonds. Joel. And Craig. Be fruitful and multiply, brethren. My wife loves these jokes. (laughs) She's dying over there. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosha, son of Elah, king of Israel... Shalmanser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. And even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. That's Second Kings chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Because the people of Israel did not listen to the voice of God, they were carried away into captivity into Assyria. God spoke, and they did not listen. God spoke to the people, and it says they neither listened nor obeyed. We read in another spot in Second Kings... He said to Jeroboam, take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give the ten tribes to thee. Thus saith the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. That prescription, thus saith the Lord, thus says God, is God speaking a command to his people. It's a command for all time that everyone was bound, their consciences were bound to obey. When the word of God is opened in this pulpit, as Trevor said, and is rightly delivered, it is God speaking and every conscience in here is bound to obey it. There is no option. There is no option to say, oh, I'll consider that and maybe do something with it later. When God speaks through his word, every conscience in here is bound to obey him. 
This morning we come to the close of our exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And I thank God that this series seems to have been very life-giving and grace-imparting to our congregation. And next week we will turn to a four-week exposition looking at Romans chapter 8 where we'll further look into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But today... But today, in this closing exposition, in the latter half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to deal with the issue of prophecy. We're going to deal with the issue of prophecy and order. We've spent the last two weeks talking about tongues, so those tongues is mentioned in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 14. We're not going to mention it today. If you want more information on that or want more of an exposition, you can go back and listen to the two previous sermons where I can direct you to... Uh, resources to aid your study, but this morning we're talking about the gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers... Earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And this is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning, and we come to you from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of dispositions. We come to you with different experiences of the week, some of us rejoicing, some of us are despondent, some of us have tiny cups to fill, some of us have large cups to fill, and we ask God that you would feed your people through the preaching of your word. We pray that every heart 
would be enamored with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, and we would find our rest, our hope, our happiness, our significance, our security, and our satisfaction in him and him alone. God, we ask you to do this mighty thing through the preaching of your word, and only you can do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to a topic, we're talking about the gift of prophecy, I'll just give a reveal now. What I think the New Testament is describing when it talks about prophecy is something different than what the Old Testament describes as something of prophecy. The prophets in the Old Covenant were the prophets that said, thus saith the Lord, and every person was bound to obey it. The prophets of the New Testament seem to be something a little bit different. They seem to be a little bit different. So let's unpack what that means and what that looks like from the scriptures here, and hopefully we can have some illumination. But point one, in understanding this nature of New Testament prophecy, point one, we need to understand the nature of the Bible. So point one is the Bible. Listen to this quote from from John Piper, a pastor and teacher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He says, the reason that we can be sure that our being spiritually alive and God's being 100% for us in Jesus Christ is by God's grace alone, on the basis of Jesus alone, received through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It's because we know this because God wrote a book. Because God wrote a book. God's word then, not a pope's, not parents, not popular opinion, God's word is what has final authority. The reformers stood upon the word of God. Martin Luther famously said before his opponents, he says, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. And as Christians, we stand with the reformers, and we stand upon God's word as the final authority. God's word is the final authority. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith described their understanding of the scriptures, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the content of all its parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfection Therefore, our arguments whereby it is done abundantly, the evidence to be the word of God itself. Christians throughout the ages have stood upon the authority of God's word alone as the final arbiter for faith and practice. The Bible itself considers itself to be a final authority. Listen to what Jude Says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he's writing to them. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to all the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago, were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the answer to people who are driving people away from the gospel, people that are driving people away, confusing, diverting away from the faith that's once been handed down, was to write something. He's writing to them a letter. God wrote to us a book. Even in this passage that we just read, Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 through 38, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So anyone that doesn't understand Paul's writings to the church in Corinth as writings and words from God himself, that person shouldn't even be recognized in the church. God has spoken to us, and he's given to us a book. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, sees that his preaching is God's word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 He says, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for it really is the word of God. Paul believes that when he's preaching, preaching the gospel to the people in Thessalonica, that what they're receiving is actually the very words of God. Later, In the New Testament, as the New Testament authors are kind of starting to come to a conclusion and and stop their writing, Peter talks about Paul's letters and considers them on par with Scripture. Do you know that? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Peter says this, Paul wrote to you in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Paul just said, you hear what Peter just said? Peter just said that Paul's letters should be, are hard to understand in some parts, like the rest of the scriptures. That's remarkable. He calls Paul's letters scripture. The New Testament authors and the apostles were aware of what they were doing. They were aware that their letters were going to be circulated. And they were aware that their letters should be considered on par with the Tanakh, with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible. So the point is this that I'm trying to make here at the beginning. This is the statement. This is the way that it's been said in Protestant theology. That the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. The Bible is the only or final rule for faith and practice. And that idea, that notion, that doctrine, that principle is rooted in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's rooted in the sufficiency of Scripture as revealed in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, where Paul says to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have a book. You have this book that God has given you as the final authority for faith and practice, the final rule for faith and practice. God has spoken to you this morning already. When the scriptures were read at the scripture reading, when the scriptures were read at the beginning of the sermon, God was speaking to you. So that's point one. 
We have to understand and have a high and reverent esteem for the Bible if we're going to understand the nature of New Testament prophecy. So point two, New Testament prophecy. Point two, New Testament prophecy. When we use the word, and when I use the word prophecy, we're not primarily referring to predictions of future events. That's primarily what Old Testament prophecy was concerned with, the prediction of future events. When we're talking about New Testament prophecy, we're not primarily talking about the prediction of future events. A simple definition that comes right from this book. Most of this sermon, by the way, comes from this book. It's called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament Today by Wayne Grudem. I commend this book to you. This is Grudem's definition. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Let us pray. (laughs) (laughs) Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is speaking forth in merely human words something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Prophecy in the New Testament is speaking forth, is saying something, is bringing to the light, in mere human words, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now, as we're unpacking this, the first thing that we need to ask, and I need to prove to us, is that the New Testament church, the early church, as we see it revealed in the book of Acts and in the letters to the churches, they did not consider New Testament prophecy to be on par with Scripture. They did not consider New Testament prophecy to be on par with Scripture. Here's one argument that Gruda makes. He says, were thousands of, quote, prophets actually speaking the very words of God? Were God's people to be expected to go around to the many hundreds or maybe even thousands of churches in the first century and collect the prophecies that were given week after week and write them down and produce hundreds of volumes known as words of the Lord, which are to be obeyed as they obey Scripture? No. In fact, we have no record of anything like this even happening, nor do we have any record anywhere in the New Testament of churches recording or preserving these prophecies as if they were the words of the Lord. Rather, they, were, they preserved and obeyed the writings and the teachings of the apostles. They did not preserve and obey the writings and teachings of all the prophets. They did not consider them to be on par with each other. Second point, to prove that the New Testament church did not consider New Testament prophecy to be on par with Scripture is found in Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they're not to disquench the Spirit by despising prophecy. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. He says, don't quench the Spirit by despising prophecy. Rather, they're to test everything. That is, they're to weigh, they're to judge, they're to evaluate, they're to assess what is purports to be a prophetic word, and then they're to hold to what is good and to abstain from every form of evil. Now, follow the argument. The Thessalonians, obviously here, they have a high regard of God's word. They have a high regard of God's word. As I read a second ago in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says of them, when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as words of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They received it. 
They eagerly received God's word. They didn't consider it to be words of men. They believed it and considered it to be the very words of God himself. So at the end of the letter, when he says, don't quench the spirit by despising prophecies, you realize what he's saying. They must not see them on par. If there's the propensity to despise the prophecies, they must not think it's the very word of God itself. They wouldn't despise the word of God. They eagerly received the word of God. So he has to preach and he has to warn them to their weakness. Their tendency is to have a high regard of the word, to be a word-centered people, and therefore despise these prophecy things. And we set up this dichotomy early in the series that there are generally, very broad stroke comment here, two different kinds of churches. In the Protestant world, there are churches that highly regard and esteem the word, they're Bible-preaching churches, which is a good and great thing. Or there are churches that tend to be more charismatic that highly value the spontaneous, the prophecies. And oftentimes, those two don't go together because those kinds of people kind of grade against each other, right? So Paul, looking at Thessalonians, they're the word guys. And he's telling them, don't quench the spirit by despising the prophecies. He's speaking to their weakness. That's their tendency, that's their propensity, is to disregard that kind of stuff, to even despise that kind of stuff. And he says, when you do so, you're quenching the spirit. Instead, he tells them how to do it orderly. He says, test everything, weigh everything, consider everything, and then hold on to what is good and reject what is evil. Hold on to what is good and reject what is evil. So the point that we've been making, I digressed a bit there, but the point was that the New Testament church did not consider prophecy to be on par with Scripture. They didn't. So again, our simple definition from Wayne Grudem, prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is speaking forth in human words something that God has spontaneously brought to mind spontaneously brought to mind. Now the second subpoint I'm going to get here before we start getting more nitty-gritty into the details of this is I said this at the beginning of the series but it, it struck me again this week um, of Paul's command to the church in Corinth. He says to them not to be open to spiritual gifts and their operation in the local assembly. He says, but they should earnestly desire for their presence. They should be zealous for the presence. Which we've said before is somewhat odd if you understand the problems that are going on in Corinth. You can understand this exhortation given to a church that had much more maturity. A church like Thessalonica or Ephesus. To a church where there was great character, but they were in need of power. This kind of exhortation makes sense. But Corinth is a church with great power and very little character. Church, Corinth is a church with great power and very little character. So it seems that could it be outright dangerous for Paul to tell the very people who are abusing spiritual gifts to earnestly desire it. He says, be eager for more. Be eager for more. Isn't he simply, it sounds like he's throwing gasoline on a raging fire. But it reveals something. It reveals something, that the suppression of spiritual zeal 
is never the answer. The suppression of spiritual zeal is never the answer to immaturity. Too much power, too much presence of the Holy Spirit is never a problem. Too little maturity is, but too much power, too much presence. Paul doesn't say, okay, you guys need to pump the brakes a little bit. He says, earnestly desire it. Be zealous about it. Have it at the forefront of your mind. Consider and continue pursuing this. Don't stop. More power, more presence, more manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your midst. Because suppression of spiritual zeal is never the answer to too little maturity. I can't think of a place in the Bible where the absence of spiritual power is ever portrayed as a good thing. The Bible never portrays the absence of spiritual power as a good thing. So us as a congregation, don't despise prophecies, don't quench the spirit. So let's ask a few questions to give some contours to what it is. First, can anyone prophesy? Can anyone prophesy? I think at its face, the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean that everyone in the church should expect to function consistently as a prophet in the church. Paul wishes that all would prophesy, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, but I don't think that means that he necessarily expects them all to. His desire for people to prophesy comes from his recognition that the one who prophesies builds up, 1 Corinthians 14, 4. The one who prophesies edifies the church. The one who prophesies builds other people up. And in his other two comments where he mentions it, verse 24 and verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. In verse 24, he says, but if all prophesy. So it seems to suggest the possibility that any Christian can and might speak prophetically. But again, this doesn't mean that everyone will speak prophetically. Paul's probably drawing a distinction on the one hand of those who we would call prophets who consistently display the ability and the gift and those who merely on occasion or at times prophesy. That's why he, in, his, in, his, in his list in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, he asks the rhetorical question, doesn't he? He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The rhetorical answer is no. There's a variety of gifts. We all don't have the same gift. So it seems that he's making a distinction here. I think we can make a category here. That yes, everyone can prophesy. There's, there's not a, a reason to think that some of us have some, some prohibition or reason to not. But at the same time, I don't know that we should expect everyone to. So that's answering the question, can anyone prophesy? Yes. Number two, where does prophecy come from? Where does prophecy come from? Well, in verse 30, he says it like this. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, he calls prophecy a revelation. Remember, prophecy is is bringing to light, is speaking something that God has revealed spontaneously to someone. 
In verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 2, Paul seems to suggest that the basis on which prophecies are made is the reception of divine mysteries, he calls them, in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. So he's called them revelations, he's called them divine mysteries, and in every instance that they're referred to, it refers to divine activity. Whether it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, whether it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you do, it, if you do a, a search in the New Testament to look up Apocalypto, which is revealed, it occurs 26 times. The noun form, Revelation, occurs 18 times. And every single one of those instances, without exception, is referring to some kind of divine activity. It's a divine revelation. It's a divine mystery. It's a divine secret that's being imparted to a human being. So that's where it comes from. It comes from God. It's not just a random thought that you just might have had. It's not something that comes because you had bad Mexican food last night. It's something that comes from God himself. It's a revelation from God. Prophecy, therefore, this is Sam Storm's definition. Prophecy is the fruit of a spontaneous revelation. Prophecy is the fruit of a spontaneous revelation. And Storms makes a distinction in his book, A Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. He says, if prophecy and preaching and teaching were one and the same, there would be no reason for Paul to differentiate between the two in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. When he's listing out the gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why would he make a distinction between prophets and pastors, teachers, if they were the same thing? So it's different It's different than preaching and teaching. It's just bringing to light, it's speaking something that God has spontaneously brought to someone's mind. It's speaking something that God has spontaneously brought to someone's mind. What's the content? Question number three. What's the content? There's a number of things. By looking at the New Testament and looking by way of example through the book of Acts and other places, the kinds of things that God might choose to reveal through this gift. It could be a warning. Remember when Paul was in Tyre in Acts chapter 21 and Agabus the prophet has that vision where Paul's going to be bound. It was a warning to him. We'll come back to that one in a second. It was a warning to him. It spoke to a specific situation In the person's life, it could be guidance for decision-making. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, this is when Paul and Barnabas are set apart and they're sent out. It says that it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I don't know for sure. Maybe that's the gift of prophecy. Maybe God is spontaneously revealing something to those men while they're spending time fasting and praying. And maybe a revelation of some illness of which God intends to heal you. Or fourth, remember what Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So in some sense, Paul is suggesting and telling Timothy that the gift that he has of preaching and teaching and leading that congregation in Ephesus was given to him by prophecy when the elders laid their hands on him. 
those four things. What else about its content, though? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, that prophecy builds up, that prophecy encourages, that prophecy consoles. Prophecy is not meant to tear someone down. I can't envision a scenario where it says, I think God might have a word for you. God says you're an idiot. I don't think that encourages, builds up, edifies, consoles, or so on. (laughs) When people, maybe this has happened to you. It's happened to me before. When you're suddenly confronted, when you're suddenly confronted with the inescapable reality that God truly knows you, that he truly knows your heart, he truly knows your mind, and that he's heard your prayers in an intimate way. And another person speaks a prophecy and just says, does this mean anything to you? It's a profound and wonderful experience to know that the God of the Bible is still active, that he still speaks, and that he's intimately concerned and cares for you where you're at in your situation. To edify you, to build you up, to remind you of the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ, to remind you that you are loved by God, that you are not bought based on your worth, but you were bought because of the merits of Jesus Christ. That's happened to me before, and I pray it's happened to you. I pray that this church... That we as a congregation, when we receive those, what seem to be impressions, revelations, mysteries from God, that we'd have the courage to speak them to one another. Now, this is, this, is, this is hard for some of us. I realize that. It's hard for some of us because we want to hold this book up, and we always will hold this book up, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's hard for some of us because it can be uncomfortable. We don't know if we're right. We don't know if it's really coming from God. We don't know if it's just a spontaneous thought that we just had. But Paul tells us to not quench the spirit by devising prophecies. That we should create intentional and safe space for these kinds of things to happen. That God might still speak a word of encouragement. God might still speak, give you a revelation for somebody else. So let's ask us a couple questions. How do we know it's from God? How do we know it's from God? Well, the first and foremost, it seems pretty obvious, is that we have to hold it up against the word of God. We have to hold every prophecy up to the Bible. Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians are that they should test everything. Don't despise the prophecy, but test everything. Do you realize that... Uh, Christians, unfortunately, are biblically illiterate. Christians, unfortunately, are biblically illiterate. We don't read this book enough. We don't have this book tucked down into the secret crevices of our hearts and our minds. So that when we know, when a prophecy comes or something comes to our mind, immediately your brain begins to scan the scriptures and you just have this sense in you, "Ah, that's not from God. That doesn't seem like that's from God because you're so immersed, you're so... um, You're so deep and enriched by the word of God. We could solve a lot of problems about people giving wrong, speaking wrong prophecies and wrong revelations and wrong mysteries if we just knew our Bibles better. If we just knew the book of Proverbs better. I did an an experiment. This is a weird experiment. I I tried something, I'll say, this week. My sister is is, uh, in 
in Virginia. She's um, doing a Bible read-through uh, program and where you're reading whole books of the Bible at a time. And so just to test this out, I just, the other day, this week, just timed how long it took to leisurely read through the book of James. Just set my phone, set a timer, how long it took to leisurely read through the book of James. How long do you think it took? Ten minutes. It took ten minutes to leisurely read through the book of James. I mean, we, I know that most of you spend more on your Instagram every day than reading the book of James. But if we were to immerse ourselves in this book, when divine revelation came, when prophecies came, we would have a better keel. We would have a better standard, a quicker standard, whereby we can judge if this is from God. Before we even speak it. Before we even say it. So that's number one. How do we know it's from God? Does it hold up against the word? So you as the speaker, you the one that received the divine revelation, you consider first if it holds up to the word of God before you even say it. And then you too, the recipient, when you hear it, you weigh it against the word of God and you hold on to what is good and you reject what is evil. Which means when we go to one another with a potential prophecy, with a potential revelation, we don't come to that person saying, thus saith the Lord. God said. We don't say that. Because we don't know. We don't know if it really ultimately was from God. We say it humbly. We say it meekly. We say it open-handedly. We say, I think this might be from the Lord. I think this might be for you. Test it against the scriptures. Prayerfully consider it. If it's from God, praise him. If it's not, just reject it and move on. We have to be comfortable to have that kind of safe space that intentional space if we're going to operate in this gift. Because our tendency, well, I don't know, I'm not going to speak for you. My tendency is to be like the Thessalonians, to despise it, because it's not what I'm used to. This is more objective. This is absolutely objective. This is easier in some sense. Number two. Number two, how do we know it's from God? Uh, I, I think experience. I think as we operate in these kinds of giftings, as we receive these kinds of giftings, we begin to have experience, we begin to understand more how God operates. An example from this in the scriptures, Acts chapter 21, when Paul is in Tyre, I mentioned, I said I'd bring this up again. Um, The scene there is that Agabus has this vision for Paul that he's going to be bound. He wants to go to Rome, Agabus has a vision, says he's going to be bound, and everyone there urges him not to go. Now, they were right about the vision. They were right about the prophecy. They were right about the revelation. Paul was going to go to Rome and he was going to be bound. He was going to be arrested. But they were wrong in the interpretation. They were wrong in the interpretation. They said, therefore, don't go. And Paul's like, you guys don't understand. Everywhere I go, I either get beat up or thrown in jail. All right? Jesus told me when he saved me that this was my lot in life. All right? So, Thanks for the heads up that I'm going to get arrested again. Thanks for the pity party. I realize it, but I'm going anyway. And it was by experience. Paul knew something of experience. He knew the ministry that Jesus had called him to in a way that the other people didn't. But they were faithful to reveal the prophecy to him. They they had a word from God. They had a vision. They had the courage to speak it. And Paul had the courage to say, thanks, but I'm going anyway. That's the way New Testament prophecy functions. And third, prayerfully consider it. 
We prayerfully consider it. We ask God. We hold it up to his word. We hold it up to past experience of what God has shown us, God has told us previously, and we prayerfully consider it. God, is this from you? God, is there something in here that you would have me obey? Is there something in here that you mean to encourage me with? Sometimes it's just so obvious. Sometimes it's just so obvious, and generally the times that it's happened to me, it's very simple. It's a scripture, it's a word, it's an encouragement. It's in a time when maybe you're going through a difficult season and another Christian encourages you. God just says he wants you to know that he loves you and his smile is upon you. That's how we know. Uh, Point three. I'm going to make a comment here that I wasn't going to make. If you uh, notice, there's that middle section, verses 34 and 35. Uh, I was just going to just kind of graciously pass over this part of the, of the text here and address it uh, some other time. But some of you asked me yesterday if I would address it, so yesterday I, I added this section to my notes here, and it says this. It says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission... As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, what does Paul mean by this? (laughs) You're smiling at me. We know a few things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that women can prophesy in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that women should prophesy in the church. At Pentecost, when Joel chapter 2 is read, it says that, that young men and old women prophesy, that your daughters will prophesy, that old women will prophesy, okay? So what has Paul now done here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Now, these are some of the options that people actually suggest, okay? One person suggests that Paul changed his mind, that he wrote chapter 11, and that by the time he got to chapter 14, he just kind of changed his mind. That I can't even... I'm not even going to deal with that. That's, that's just a ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Okay. You know, he could go back and take out chapter 11 before he sent the letter along. Some would suggest that it's a later edition. That verses 34 and 35 were added by a scribe uh, as the text was being transmitted. But that doesn't hold up to textual criticism theory anyway. Because all of the earliest manuscripts, without exception, have verses 34 and 35 in them. So if it was going to be added it would not reflect in the earlier manuscripts. Third, people suggest that the women in Corinth were particularly unruly. (laughs) The women in Corinth were particularly unruly. That may be, or may not be, but look at the text. It says, at the end of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints... He's not just addressing the women at the church in Corinth. He's saying the women in all the churches everywhere. All right? So that one doesn't hold up. So what is he saying? What is he saying? Three places in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that people should be silent. He says that if you have a tongue and don't have an interpretation, you should be quiet. He says uh, if other people are prophesying, and you have, a, you have a prophetic word, you should be quiet. Now, what that doesn't mean is that those people should be quiet all the time about everything. It means in that moment, they should be quiet regarding that situation. 
I don't think what Paul's saying here is that women should be quiet in the church about everything. Because earlier in the chapter, and earlier in the, past, in, the, in the book, he says that they should prophesy. So here's our view as a local church. We're what's called a complementarian church. We believe that men and women are equally made in the image of God. That they're equally gifted before God. That they're co-heirs in the grace of life. We celebrate women today at the gathering church. It's wonderful. We celebrate that God has given us godly women. They're co-heirs. They're co-equals. Co-standing before Christ. One not better than the other. All right? Well, we believe that God has given two things specifically to men. Senior leadership in the church, the office of elder, is reserved for men. It's God's design. And along with that office, Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that he doesn't permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. And I believe the reason for that is that's primarily what an elder does. Women can be deacons in the church because the office of deacon is not an office of exercising final authority over the church, and it's not an office of teaching. But the office of elder, the main distinction between elder and deacon is the ability to teach and to exercise authority over the church. So I think that's the reason why Paul's saying a woman is not to teach or exercise authority because that's the function that's reserved for an elder. And I think that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That when a man is giving a public prophecy, prophecy isn't teaching, right? Prophecy is bringing to light something that God has divinely inspired, divinely revealed. Now, as we're testing everything in the public assembly, as we're holding fast and seeking what is good, the act of doing that requires biblical and theological discourse. So I think what Paul's saying here is that the, dis- the public discerning of a prophecy, it would not be appropriate for a woman to engage in a public interrogation in the public assembly regarding the content of a prophecy. I think that's what it means. Instead, she should go home and talk to her husband about it at home. Because it would be a violation of 1 Timothy 2, 12. Now, I hold that loosely, all right? It's not the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I thought I'd give a, speak to it a little bit to say, he's not telling the women to be quiet in church all the time about everything. I think he's simply limiting it to the interpretation and the examination of prophecy by a man in the public assembly. So at our church, we want to see women reading scripture publicly, which we do. We want women to be praying publicly. We want women to be worshiping, encouraging one another, speaking words, prophetic words to men. We are not some kind of patriarchal church that wants to put our foot on women. So how does prophecy look at the gathering church? There are two, because Paul says that all things are to be done in order. I think there are two main venues and avenues where we have made intentional space for us as a congregation to operate in these giftings. And that would be Sunday nights, Sunday night time of worship and prayer, and they would be community groups. These are intentional spaces that the elders have created, these intentional contexts where we're free to more freely operate in our gifting, free to more operate in these kinds of gifts with one another. Okay, i got to draw this to a conclusion. You know that Mother's Day is historically the most highly attended church day of the year? Because what does mom want? She wants everyone to go to church together. But if I keep preaching this long, it's going to be the least attended day of the year. Let me close with this. This has been a little ramshot. Sorry about that. 
Let me close with this. Up until this point, uh, I've, I've been teaching you uh, through this passage, but I haven't really given you good news yet. We've just been talking about what prophecy is. But we don't come here on Sunday morning just to learn about what prophecy is. We come here because we need to hear good news. We come here because we need to hear gospel. We need to hear that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Mothering is a hard thing to do. I think it's one of the, mo- one of the most discouraging jobs out there. I, my wife is a wonderful mother. I see what a great job she does. And she is more prone to thinking she's a failure <laughs> than anybody else I know. And I've seen that consistently with women. So I want to preach the gospel to you this morning. The writer of Hebrews, he said that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us by prophets. He has spoken to us by prophecies. But he has ultimately and finally spoken to us by his son. His son, the man Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. The one who God has finally spoken to us in is his son. The man Jesus Christ. And in him is the purification of sin. Because what I deserve and what you deserve is the wrath and punishment of God. Our failures, our shortcomings, they should be swallowed up by a righteous God. But instead, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to make purification for our sins. That His blood was poured out on the cross for your sake and for mine. So that because of Him and through His finished work, when he ascended from the grave, showing his victory over sin, death, and the devil, because of him, our life can now be found in him. And the smile of God, the covenantal love that we read about in Psalm 117 this morning, that covenantal, never giving up, never ending love can be ours because of Jesus Christ. And we receive it by grace through faith alone. You're standing with God. The final word has been spoken. Your standing with God is secure because the final word was spoken on the cross. It is finished. All the striving, all the posturing, all the jockeying is over. It is finished. We're words of condemnation for him, but words of grace and hope for you. It is finished. He has done it. He has overcome for your sake. If we never get prophecy right, if we fumble through it for the rest of our lives, it doesn't matter. Because the final word has been spoken. God has spoken to us in his son and we receive that simply by faith. Through his grace, his love, and his mercy. So receive that this morning. Cling to it by faith even now as I'm preaching. Believe it. Hold to it. Let us pray.